Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, y'all ready for the word? Because we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5 today. If you haven't been there, there's a little bit of of background. Uh, How many of you have heard of the phrase, the writing is on the wall? You ever heard that before? Uh, It usually means that something bad is about to happen. Uh, And if you're wondering where it comes from, it comes from Daniel chapter 5. It means something like your fate has been sealed. A decision has been made. Uh, To give you a little bit of background on what exactly I'm talking about and to catch you up to speed, the year is 539 BC, or at least at this part of the story. Nearly 70 years has passed since Daniel and his friends were brought in chains to Babylon. You might remember that that's what happened, that God had warned his people that there was going to be a time of judgment, that if they had not, did not repent and turn back to him, that he was going to subject them to the rule. And of course, they didn't. And so God's a person of his word. And so they, they come under the rule of the Babylonians. And the person that was leading that up was Nebuchadnezzar. Well, 70 years have passed in that kind of life where they're pulled under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. They're told, you will learn our culture. You will learn our language. You will worship our gods. You will not worship the God that you desire to worship. It's not good, right? And imagine in a time of exile, it's not just that you're being like pulled up and uprooted and taken to a place that you don't wanna go. It's that you've literally been overtaken. And that means that Daniel had to watch some of his family and friends die. He's probably in his mid-teens at this time, so that makes it even more interesting because what a weird time of life anyway, you know? And so you throw this on top of it. All of this is going on. Daniel, at this part of the story, he's an old man now. Some would say he's well over 80 years old. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. And so for about, oh, I don't know, about 23 years or so, Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar. Some of you remember Belteshazzar was the Babylonian name that was given to Daniel. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Belshazzar has taken over leadership. He is, at least according to most, he is probably the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he just kind of inherits all of this wealth and status. And frankly, people, he's a pill. That's what he is. And he's hosting this party. I just want to kind of talk you a big overview of what's happening in Daniel chapter 5. He's hosting this big party. Uh, If you look at Daniel chapter 5 verse 1, it says he's serving them wine. But friends, that doesn't really describe it. You got to understand, he was throwing an all-out kegger is what he was doing. I mean, the alcohol was really flowing in this space because that's what it means. It's lots of wine. And these people are like drinking it down. There are a thousand nobles at this party. You've got to agree with me, that's impressive. I mean, a thousand of anybody showing up to a party is impressive, but a thousand nobles? I mean, this is like having the Kennedys and the Rockefellers and all those people all in one place at your party. And then suddenly, while the party is going on, a mysterious floating hand appears and begins to carve a message into the wall. Now, how many of you would agree with me that if you were there, you would probably be thinking something like this. I know we've been drinking, (laughs) but uh, that's odd. (laughs) That's a little different. And it's not like just one person is seeing it. It's like every person in the room is seeing this. That's terrifying. I mean, this is Adam's family stuff. I think the hand that was disconnected from the body was thing. It's something like that. 
floating in the wall and, and etching words into the wall. The three words were this, at least in terms of their meaning, numbered, weighed, and divided. People, when they sit, they start to scream. At this point, you know the party's over. Is that right? The party is over. They start to, to scream. The Babylonian wise men are summoned. Now we've seen this in the book of Daniel before because with Nebuchadnezzar, that is the one in leadership before Belshazzar, he has multiple visions. And every time he has these visions, he calls for the wise men, his wise men, to come and interpret this for him. Here's the problem. They never could. They just couldn't. And so... Daniel and his friends who had been conscripted into, into leadership for Nebuchadnezzar, you remember? Daniel's the one that's able to actually do the interpreting for Nebuchadnezzar. Well, here's what's going on with Belshazzar. He calls the wise man. He's like, you guys, you need to come in and tell me what's going on. And guess what? I know this is gonna stun you. They can't, they can't. It's like, look on the wall. What does the writing mean? They're like, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, at this part in the narrative, there's this elderly queen, probably Nebuchadnezzar's widow, Belshazzar's grandma, and she says this, I once knew a man who can interpret messages like this. And she tells Belshazzar about Daniel. Boy, that really got me thinking. Uh, apparently, Daniel we're like, where did this guy go? You know, we're not really sure because it's like from Daniel 4 to Daniel 5, it's just like 20 something years happens. It just kind of rolls into 20 something years later. But then there's grandma, right? And she's like, there's this guy named Daniel. And I have visions of Star Wars in my head. And the reason I do is because Daniel is just kind of, he's like Obi-Wan Kenobi at this point in the story. You know? Remember Obi-Wan, early on, he's like very active, fighting Darth Vader and whatnot. But then there's this hit that's put out on the Jedi and Yoda and all the gang, they're like, you know, we need to scatter across the galaxies. Is everybody following what I'm talking about here? And Obi-Wan Kenobi just goes out onto this, rem this remote planet and he's just out there living like a hermit. I kind of feel like Daniel's a little bit like this because grandma here, or Belshazzar's grandma is like, there's this guy, he's named Daniel. Where's he at? Like, where'd he go? Well, some have wondered this. Maybe he's just retired from public life. Uh, or maybe he had just been put out to pasture. I mean, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had this moment. You gotta agree with me. Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit of a hard-headed guy. And we'll talk about this more here in a little bit. But Belshazzar comes in and maybe Belshazzar looks at Daniel and he's like, hey, thanks for your service to grandpa, but you're out. You know, we're not really sure what happened here. Either way, they send for him. All right, go find him. And he comes in and he reads the message on the wall. And this is what it says in Daniel 5, 26. Mini, mini, that word means numbered. Mini, mini, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and he's gonna bring it to an end. Verse 27, tekel, that word means weighed. In other words, it means you have been weighed on a balance and you have been found deficient. How many of you would love to be told that today? We've kind of taken, a, I don't know, just a snapshot of your life and Gotta tell you, not a lot of substance there. That's basically what was just said to Belshazzar. And unlike his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar has never come to a place where he humbles himself before God. He just doesn't get there. And then the last word is parsin, which means divided. And basically what Daniel is saying is, is this kingdom is about to fall and it's gonna be handed over to the Medes and the Persians. 
but your days are done. That very night, just so you know, not far from where they're standing as Daniel is interpreting this for him, the army of the Medes and the Persians are already there. They've already gathered. There's already actually been some conflicts between the two groups. And that very night, Babylon is gonna be overthrown by Belshazzar or, or, or by the Medes and the Persians. And Belshazzar and all of his royal family are gonna be dead before the night is over. This story is about how God ultimately brought down a prideful, rebellious, and unjust Babylonian empire. But it's also about more than that. It's about how God kept his promise to his own people. He promised that there would be a time of judgment because of their sin. He said that would render to about to 70 years. And that time had come to completion. God is honoring his promise to his people. And with this, that means he's going to restore them. He's gonna let them, so to speak, back into the land. They're cast out, but I'm gonna let you back in. You think about Belshazzar, though. It seems like the people are happy to follow his lead. What do you think? I mean, this guy is full of idolatry and the people are good with it. It's not just about him. It's about the culture that is there in Babylon. As I've said before, Babylon in the Old Testament represents a place. You go about 60 miles south of Baghdad, you're gonna run into it. By the New Testament, you look at the writing of Peter, you look into Revelation, Babylon represents a spirit. It's a spirit of rebellion. It is a spirit that represents everything that is against God. That is it. So it got me thinking about Belshazzar. I was like, what's this guy really like? And Daniel, I think, tells us. If you look in Daniel chapter five, verse four, it says, 20 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death, his grandson Belshazzar, quote, praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Everything that Nebuchadnezzar had done before him and repented of, Belshazzar says, I actually prefer that way of life. We're gonna go back to it. By the way, gold, I'm not sure it's really worth your time and worship. It's not a living thing, but boy, we give ourselves over to it. Is that fair? Belshazzar certainly did. And then if you look down in Daniel chapter five, verses 20 to 24, he begins by talking about grandpa. He begins by talking about Nebuchadnezzar and he's talking to Belshazzar, but he's like, learn from your past. Learn from your past. Notice what it says. It says, but when his, and that's Nebuchadnezzar, when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle and his, his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the most high God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. You might remember that's exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, who, though he didn't agree with the practices of Nebuchadnezzar, it seems had really grown a liking for him. We saw that in chapter four. And so with this vision that had been given to Nebuchadnezzar about this tree that was chopped down and fell over, he's like, I need somebody to interpret this for me. And Daniel comes in. And what does he say to Nebuchadnezzar? He says, you're the tree. You're the tree. And by the way, anytime you're the tree and the tree is gonna get chopped down, that's not good for you. This is not gonna be a good day. He says, but you're the tree. But he gives him this promise. He says, it doesn't have to be like this. Repent and see God for who God is. This won't happen to you. And what was Nebuchadnezzar's response? It was like, nah, I don't think so. And so he persists in it. And then what happened was, as he was talking 
the promise of God on judgment for Nebuchadnezzar happened. And he loses his mind. As we saw last week, there is an actual condition for this. It's called boanthropy. This is where people actually believe that they are cows. Nebuchadnezzar fell into this place. First recorded, well, not the first, but the first documented case of it was in 1946. I think it's probably in the book of Daniel, but whatever. This is a real thing. Then check out verse 22 of Daniel chapter five, because he comes back to Belshazzar. He says, but you, his successor, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart. Even though you know all this, you know all this about your grandpa. You haven't, you haven't humbled your heart. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you. And as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines, you drank wine from them. You praised the gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They don't see or hear or understand, but you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand. You owe your breath to him and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand. You remember thing? He sent the hand, and this writing was inscribed. So let's get back to the party for a second. They're having that throwdown, right? What's unusual about the party is that Belshazzar knew the combined armies of the Medes and the Persians were not far away. He knows that. How would you, let's imagine you're a leader for a second. You got, you got this army at your disposal. Babylon is powerful. How would you spend your time leading your people if you knew two armies had come against you? They're right over there, ready to whip you. You think you would throw a party and say, everybody get drunk? He did. He did. And it's got people wondering, why did he do that? Well, everybody in Babylon already knew that they were there. Everybody was on edge. This wasn't the first time they had been attacked. I've pointed that out before. Something just seems different here. Something seems different. This is a huge organized army that is waiting for you. Actually, not waiting for you. They're coming after you. So why in the face of danger is Belshazzar throwing a party? Here's the, long, here's the short answer. We don't know. We have no idea. But it hasn't kept people from wondering, so I'm gonna throw a couple of ideas out. Note takers, are y'all ready for this? Here's the first. Maybe what Belshazzar was doing is he was trying to put on a brave face to inspire everyone by his courage. Here you are, you're coming under attack, but I don't want you, as a matter of fact, I'm gonna drink to the point that I get drunk. I am not worried about it. Come on into the party. Everything is gonna be just fine. I mean, that's certainly one possibility and inspired by his courage. Look at that guy. Armies all around us and he's like, it's all good. That could be a possibility. Here's another possibility. Maybe he's, maybe he's scared absolutely to death because they're surrounded by a powerful army and he's trying to basically distract himself with amusement and alcohol. Like to the point where he says, I'm gonna get drunk to the point. I don't even know what's going on around me because it's that bad. That's another possibility. I don't know. Or here's another possibility. Maybe he's just so arrogant that he thinks that Babylon can never fall. That's certainly a possibility. In fact, even though he's looking at a prophet of God that says, your kingdom is about to drop, he's looking at the prophet of God and going, I don't care what you say. No one can beat me. Well, those are your main theories as to why he's throwing a shindig when he's surrounded by a powerful army. But it reminded me of this. There's a famous English poet named William Ernest Henley. 
He lived from 1849 to 1903. He's remembered mainly for a single poem called Invictus. Invictus is the Latin phrase meaning unconquered. And here's what he said. He said, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Maybe, just maybe, that's Belshazzar. Just so you know, this poem has inspired millions of people. Famous people and infamous people have drawn a lot of their meaning from it. Nelson Mandela, just so you know, recited Invictus when he was having some of the darker days when he was imprisoned. Timothy McVeigh invoked Invictus and even recited Invictus when he received a lethal injection for murdering 167 people in the Oklahoma City bombings a number of years ago. Many of you know who Timothy McVeigh is. He recited Invictus. I will not bow my head. William Ernest Henley wrote Invictus when he was 27 years old, having battled tuberculosis of the bone for a number of years, to which, by the way, he had lost a leg and which eventually killed him when he was 53 years old. Now, to his own words, he was an avowed atheist. He did not believe that God existed. So the only place that he could look to strength, he said, was to myself. He didn't believe that there was any larger purpose to the pain, the pain that he underwent. It was just, as he said in his poem, it's just the bludgeonings of chance. I'm being beaten to death by chance. And his only hope was to take his bludgeonings, as he said, like a man, which to him meant a stoic resolve, and I never surrender. I will never surrender. So he writes Invictus. As one person said, as a poetic middle finger to the cosmos... And if God exists, it's for him too. That's Henley. Maybe, maybe it's this for Belshazzar. So let's get back to the story. Belshazzar is partying in the face of death. He's partying like it's 539 BC. Blaise Pascal gives us some insight on other reasons that we party, even though we know that our demise is right in front of us. Here's what he said. The most consistent human reaction to unpleasant thoughts about our mortality is to distract ourselves with amusement. It's almost like the violinists that are on the Titanic. I don't think anybody is wondering if the ship is going down, but here, we're gonna play our instruments so that we're distracted from the reality that's right in front of us. He uses, that is Pascal, uses two analogies to point this out. He says, life, he said, is like being on a stagecoach that is barreling toward a cliff. You know that the cliff is coming and you can't stop the stagecoach or get out of it. But instead of thinking about your coming death and what it means for you, you start to distract yourself with observations about the beautiful scenery along the road or you engage in pleasant conversations with fellow passengers as if there's nothing else to see here, like the cliff 
that's coming. And here's what Pascal goes on to say. He says, despite his afflictions, man wants to be happy. Only wants to be happy. It's what you want in the deepest part of who you are and can't help wanting to be happy. But how shall he go about it? The best thing would be to make himself immortal, but as he cannot do that, he has decided to stop thinking about it. It's what we do. We distract ourselves, and it keeps us from answering the most important questions about life and about God. The, the only difference between Belshazzar and us, my friends, is that he was told today that he's gonna die. Like he was told, you're done. We may not know the exact day like he did, but we are sure it's coming. We are sure of that. So let me get back to the vision. Uh, Daniel, by the way, won't let Belshazzar, and I love this, because Daniel comes up to interpret it. And One of the big differences in this interpretation versus the last time, if you remember, you know, Nebuchadnezzar draws him in. He's like, what, what does this mean about a tree falling and all that? And, and Daniel says, I, I wish this wasn't true. It seems like in spite of their disagreements, and in spite of kind of the, you know, the, the difference in the way that they see God, and all, Daniel really grew to love Nebuchadnezzar. They become friends. You can do that with people you disagree with. I'm here to tell you, friends, he didn't have any hesitation talking to Belshazzar, though. I've, al I've often wondered if he's just kind of an old man and he don't care anymore. What does it mean? It, well, I'll tell you. You know? Or maybe if it's like kind of what some think, you know, he had been a faithful servant in the palace and Belshazzar comes in, he goes, hey, hey, Dan, I see you over there and you're out, you know? And then he's like, hey, could you come back in and interpret this for me? And Dan's like, oh, I'll, I'll interpret this for you. <laughs> I'll be glad to interpret this for you. You know, we're not exactly sure, but he wouldn't let him pay him. He's like, come here, let me give you stuff, like a golden robe and a, a purple robe and all this stuff. And Daniel's like, no, I'm just gonna tell you what's up. That's what he does. Keep your gifts and your rewards. And he says something that's difficult to say. And there's a couple of things for us here in this example. One is he was willing to say difficult things to somebody that needed to hear it. He was willing to say it. But the other thing that we see from this is how we respond to it. I wanna give you a little bit of Christmas before Christmas. Are y'all ready? We're already in November, and so uh, if you haven't, you might wanna start shopping. But this has nothing to do with that. Remember, he drew in his wise men. These were the people that were supposed to be able to interpret dreams for him. But the little Christmas before Christmas you see in Daniel chapter five is this. The wise men who saw the star in the sky and came to see the baby Jesus were from this area. It's where they were from. Babylon, of course, by that point had long fallen, but the traditions and the writings of the wise men had stayed with them. And isn't it interesting that somehow in their traditions, they had been taught to look to heaven for a clue about how the world was going to be saved. That in spite of your earthly kingdom that is going to fall, in spite of your rebellion against God, he's gonna show you a sign and a promise of salvation. Through encounters like this, they were taught that for ultimate answers about human purpose and destiny, look to heaven. God is gonna show you. And one day, God puts a star there. Here's your answer. 
500 years or so after Daniel chapter five, a group of the wise men look to the star in the sky and they're able to see the baby Jesus. The encounters in Daniel taught them to look to God and you'll find your real meaning. And it's in him. So consider this. Daniel charges Belshazzar with two main things. Two main things are the essence, really, of all of our sin, mine included. First, he says, you haven't worshiped God as God. You haven't given him glory. You haven't credited him with your power and your success. You haven't lived your life in response to him. He hasn't held first place in your heart. Instead, you worship stuff. Can I be honest with you, friends? We're not that different. We do. Things of lesser importance tend to occupy our time, our affection, and our energy. We're not that different from Belshazzar. That's the first thing he points out. Here's the second thing that he points out. He says, you took the vessels that God set apart for his purposes and you used them for yourself. Specifically, Daniel identifies temple artifacts that Belshazzar had. How did he get them? And the answer is, Nebuchadnezzar is the one that took them. You remember when the exile began, they go in, they desecrate the temple, they pull the gold and the silver out of it, and they take it with them. Now, Nebuchadnezzar puts it into a space. Belshazzar steps it up, and he says, that's going to be my drinking cup. You know, what was set apart for God, it's going to be for me now. And that's what Daniel points out. In calling this out, Daniel is giving us a glimpse into the nature of all sin. Sin consists of this, taking what God has set apart for his purposes and saying, no, this is mine. This is mine. The writing was on the wall. Before the end of the night, Belshazzar is dead. Babylon is overthrown. What was once a seemingly inconquerable empire was brought down. Trimper Longman, the Old Testament scholar, says this. He says, God's punishment is double-edged. He punishes his enemies, but by doing so, he frees his people. He punishes his enemies, but in doing so, he frees his people. Think about this. Though not in the book of Daniel, the Medes and the Persians, which destroy the Babylonians, they rise to power. And this is what leads to what's called the decree of Cyrus. You would have to go to the book of Ezra, chapter one, verses one through four about that for those of you that are note takers. But here's what happened. Cyrus issued a decree that the people could go back and they could worship their God. All it took was the downfall of Babylon for it to happen. Remember, in Daniel chapter four, we saw Nebuchadnezzar. In spite of, man, that guy was hard-headed for a while. But all he had to do was live like a cow for about seven seasons, which was a moving experience. <laughs> you know, dad jokes. You got, okay. But it's like, when he comes out of it, here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. No more. No more. The, the message took it's just a shame that that's what it took for Nebuchadnezzar to hear. It didn't have to be that way. And he repents. Do you remember that phrase in Daniel chapter four, verse 26? He says, you're the tree that's gonna fall. But this beautiful verse says, but leave a stump with its roots. You have to remember that from a root, new life can grow. And this was the promise to Nebuchadnezzar. Brother, there is a new life for you in this. If you will listen, there's new life in this. And notice Nebuchadnezzar's change. From one, it was, I'm gonna build a statue and all the people are gonna praise me to Daniel 4.34 where he says, the most high God lives forever. He got it. 
Belshazzar never did. The only difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar wasn't the offer, it was the response. It was the response. The response makes the difference. Let me get back to Invictus. You remember it? I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. With these words, Henley expressed his lifelong hatred of God. There was one person that he influenced, kind of a, a mentor of his, at least for a season, and her name was Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day lived from 1897 to 1980. That's a, that's a pretty good long life, wouldn't you agree? She was a writer and she was a social activist in her younger years when she was under the kind of the mentoring or the, the, so, so it's the teaching of William Ernest Henley. Um, she was an atheist, but she was also an anarchist and eventually became a communist. I'm still trying to figure out how that works together, but whatever. But in 1927, she had a religious, a profound religious experience and she converts to Christianity. She gives her life to Jesus. And her social activism continued. She saw all the injustice in the world, and she says, somebody's got to step up and do something about this. And she did, albeit for completely different reasons when she had found Jesus. And then she gives some thought to the famous poem written by her mentor. And she says, I have another way of looking at it. And so she wrote her own poem called My Captain. Out of the light that dazzles me, Bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid that spite the menace of the years keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Two poems really do sum up two paths before us. Two gates, two destinies, two captains. Who is your captain? You tell me who your captain is, and I can tell you where your destiny is. The most important decision you ever make in your life is what you do with Jesus. It's the most important. And this is the promise of the word, that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, there's your captain, you will be saved. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.